This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 30th, 2021. On this week's show, I'm going to talk to Ben Rothenberg about his reporting on domestic abuse allegations against the tennis player Alexander Zverev. Grant Wall will then join us to talk about Cristiano Ronaldo's move back to the club where he first became an international star, Manchester United. And we'll discuss ESPN's move to pull Rachel Nichols off all of its NBA coverage, part of the continuing fallout from a video where Nichols suggested that her then-colleague Maria Taylor was getting opportunities at the network because she's Black. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, and the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6, and the president of the Palo Alto fan club, the goalie Ed Belfour. It's Joel Anderson. Oh, I was like, what? where is this going? <laughs> Just wanted to demonstrate that I listen to Hang Up and Listen, even when I'm not... Yeah, you listen so much that you pointed out that I made two errors in the uh, Jeopardy segment. Great show, Stefan. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, thanks. Oh. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of that. Well, I said Alex Trebek was 87 when he died. And what I had done was I conflated the fact that he was 80 and he worked on, he hosted the show for 37 years. So that was number one. Uh Alex Trebek was 80 when he died. Number two was a little more personal. I said I had been to two live sporting events uh, post-pandemic or in during the pandemic. The uh, Nats game and the uh, Ultimate Frisbee game. Josh pointed out that he and I went to a tennis tournament like two weeks ago. So yeah. <laughs> wow. Apparently meant nothing to Stefan meant everything to me. Yeah. Right. Clearly resonated. <laughs> it must've clearly resonated. What was the tennis match? I don't even. It was the city open here in DC. We saw Rafa Nadal. Yeah. Jack Sock and Rafael Nadal. Mm-hmm. I told you about that, Joel. Oh yeah. You know what? I talked to you right before you went in. Yeah. That's right. You were on the phone right before you went in. Oh man. Well, that's how much, I, <laughs> that's how much it meant to me too. <laughs> well, I thought Stefan was, a little bit mean about the trivia thing, but then I just kind of got my own dig in. So maybe I uh, have, have no leg to stand on there. I actually think people should be impressed. That I even know who the hell Ed Balfour is. <laughs> so, hey, who won that anyway? Did Howard win? No, yeah, oh, no, Bamani won. Well, that doesn't seem fair. And somehow decided to call me out in his victory celebration, and I'm like, I wasn't even, <laughs> I wasn't even in the final. Like, why are you? Why did my name come up? Living rent so. free, Joel. If Bomani or anybody ESPN is still listening, you still have time to play the Eyes of Texas to salute Bomani and his favorite <laughs> team. Uh, now that he won his own tournament, so. All right, before we move on, I want to say um, to everybody on the Gulf Coast, friends, family, and people who are not my yeah. friends and family, hope everybody's okay. Um, and we are all like, hoping everything's going to, power is going to be back on uh, at, at some point in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thinking of all y'all along the coast uh, today and 
you know, for however long this goes on, it's just heartbreaking to always see this happen every every hurricane season. Um, and uh, yeah, just hope everybody can get out safe as possible. Now my conversation with Ben Rothenberg about his reporting on Alexander Zverev. On October 28th, 2020, Olga Sharapova posted a photo of herself to Instagram with the caption written in her native Russian, I have been beaten and will not be silent anymore. In an interview with a Russian website that same day, she identified the alleged perpetrator, her ex-boyfriend, the tennis player Alexander Sasha Zverev. Shortly after that, Sharapova detailed her accusations to the journalist Ben Rothenberg, accusations that Zverev has said he categorically and unequivocally denies. She told Rothenberg that at the 2019 U.S. Open, Zverev had covered her face with a pillow until she could no longer breathe. She also alleged that Zverev had punched her in the face in a hotel room in Switzerland, and that, following that, she'd injected herself with insulin and locked herself in a bathroom. All of that was detailed in a piece published in Racket Magazine, written by Rothenberg, last November. Last week, Rothenberg published a follow-up story, this one in Slate. In that article, Sharapova carries her story forward to Shanghai, China in October 2019, where she says that Zverev again punched her in the face, and she again injected herself with insulin. Sharapova also says that Zverev told her, if you want to die, you can take insulin and go die in the street because I don't want problems. I don't want to deal with you anymore. Again, Zverev denies all of these accusations. In a statement, Slate's director of media relations, Katie Rayford, said, we stand by our fair and accurate reporting based on multiple sources and interviews. I was one of the editors on the Slate story, and joining me now is the author of that story, Ben Rothenberg. Ben is a freelance tennis journalist and the co-host of the podcast, No Challenges Remaining. Hey, Ben. Hey, Josh. Can you explain how you came to interview Olga Sharapova? Yeah, I saw the Instagram post, which you mentioned at the top of your sort of rundown of the events of this story. Uh I didn't follow her on Instagram. I'd never met her before. I don't usually follow sort of the girlfriends of the players on tour who I cover. And, but it, seeing what she said and how it got, uh, when it was translated and shared on other sites on Twitter, where I saw it, I think originally, it immediately obviously raised a lot of alarms what she was saying. And when she did an interview with a Russian website, Championat, uh, later that day, she confirmed that she was talking about things that she said that Zverev had done to her in terms of physical abuse in their relationship. And she named him in that interview. Um, still, it was happening in, in, in Russian in both instances and was going through, it's tough going through Google Translate. And I just wanted to get a better sort of firsthand understanding of these very serious uh, claims she was making. And I got in touch with her and found out she was living in New Jersey, which I did not expect because um, she's Russian. And, but she was staying in New Jersey during the pandemic. And so I went up and drove to New Jersey uh, to interview her for the first time in October of last year. I gave a brief rundown in the introduction um, of the reporting in the first piece that ran in Racket and then this piece that ran in Slate. Can you detail um, the new reporting specifically that's in the Slate piece on what Sharapova alleges happened in China? Sure. So the Slate piece basically picks up a second part of the story. We did the interview in two different sittings uh, a few weeks apart from each other last fall. And the second part really focuses on events that happened in Shanghai during the Rolex Shanghai Masters tournament in the fall of 2019. It's one of the big 
largest events on the ATP tour, one of the nine masters events there. And Sharapova traveled there with Zareva. She had traveled to a lot of places on tour with him while they were dating. And she said that they first got into an argument that started based on um, some, some fruits that were left on a massage table and sort of escalated into a bigger argument about things and got very heated very quickly. And after that, rounds of what she was saying was she described as emotional abuse. She, for the second time, uh, injected herself with insulin while Zverev was not in the room and came back and had to be revived by him basically with some sort of sugar packets or something. Um, and then he continued sort of berating and insulting her, she said. And from then the next morning, they had a physical altercation where she said that he punched her and shoved her up against the wall of the bathroom while she was naked, having just gotten out of the shower. Um, and she fought back and she sort of swung at him. And then they eventually, his father came to the hotel room, told her to leave. And she went and stayed with, fortunately for her, she says, um, a friend of hers who had had been coming to visit her and Zverev after having helped them reunite earlier during the New York incident described in the racket piece. She stayed with this friend who we call Mrs. V in the pieces and got some shelter there from Zverev and didn't really see him much ever again after that. I never saw him in person again after Shanghai, uh, she says. And what is the corroboration for her story? So there's, a, there's a decent amount of corroboration, I think, for this uh, Shanghai incident. Uh, Sharapova sent two days later, I think being most critically, sent her, sent a close friend of hers photos of herself with bruises on her face and her arm uh, and said this came from Sasha. And the same thing happened as Geneva, where he also punched her in the face. And so it's her linking both those events at the same time. Uh, later that day, October 10th, uh, 2019, uh, when Sharapova says the bathroom fight happened, Zverev took the court for his second match at that Shanghai Masters tournament and had visible scratch marks on his neck. You can see pretty clearly uh, that he did not have in his first round match. So those are some pieces of visual evidence as well. Zverev also said in a conversation with Mrs. V, who is this friend of Sharapova's, that he um, he confirmed knowledge of the overdoses attempts that she uh, did with the insulin and um, said it wasn't the first time it happened in those exchanges. And so there's, a, I think, a pretty large amount compared to a lot of times when these things happen behind closed doors of sort of contemporaneous corroboration out there that she provided that we were able to find uh, in our reporting. So she posts um, on Instagram in 2020, the racket piece comes out also in the fall of 2020. Um, how did the ATP, the men's tennis tour, respond to these allegations when they first surfaced? When they first surfaced, not at all. I mean, she put her her post on Instagram and an interview with Champion not naming Zverev explicitly. And the ATP didn't say anything. Uh, we did the story for Racket that came out eight days after that first post. And they again didn't say anything. And it wasn't until eight days after that further, so 16 days total, that the ATP put out a statement that did not name Zverev, did not name Sharapova, did not say anything specific about this case, saying the ATP will only do anything if and when a court's legal proceedings have run their full course, essentially. And then it was sort of a wait and see policy, I think is how we describe it in the slate piece. They really was sort of just not proactive, not in keeping with a lot of the other philosophies that have emerged in other major sports, especially American leagues in recent years. I mean, since I think Ray Rice in the NFL was a big inflection point in these sorts of conversations, uh, as people I'm sure remember that incident. Those are policies that have been adapted and changed with different differing levels of proactiveness in the major leagues. Uh, but tennis, I think, was pretty far behind that curve in terms of men's tennis, ATP, not really being prepared for anything in this moment at this point when this emerged about one of their biggest stars. The structure of the sport 
of tennis is very different than Mm -hmm. the NFL, for instance, and obviously the NBA and Major League Baseball, too. Um, What are the challenges that um, that entails in creating, for instance, a domestic abuse policy? There's a lot of challenges, a lot of things that make this, I think, particularly tough that the ATP could point to or will have to sort of look at as it as it moves forward first of all it's not a uh, a league based in one or two countries with you know us and sometimes there's a canadian team or two in some of the leagues in north america this is a a tour that travels to new countries almost every week that has uh, i think 30 something countries on the tour over 50 something tournaments in different cities and different jurisdictions and those countries not only have different legal systems they also have different cultural attitudes towards these sorts of issues and are at different places in the conversation about that Uh, the players are also independent contractors there's not collective bargaining in tennis. There's no union for the players. Uh, And so that might give them a little bit different sort of authority and a different sort of structure to work with in terms of having something that the players could agree to or sign to in a collective bargaining agreement type thing, which is how a lot of the major leagues, not all, but a lot of the major leagues have addressed domestic violence policies has been through collective bargaining discussions. It's been an item that you know, organizations like the NBAPA or the NBPA and the uh, NFLPA and stuff have, have had to sit down and, and hash out and tennis has not had those conversations whatsoever. So that leaves them behind. Um, and then, but there's a, a I think a, a real thought that we have in the piece too, that this sort of nomadic nature of the sport, I think in a lot of ways could put, could and should put an onus on the ATP to be more proactive about this potentially that, you know, there's no through line in this, in Sharapova's story going where she alleges that abuse happened to her, a Russian woman, and she accuses a German man of this that happened in Monaco, in New York, in Geneva, in Shanghai, you know, there's not an obvious place for her to turn for official legal help. Uh, or, you know, if she wanted to file some sort of proceeding, which she had said repeatedly, she does not in criminal or civil court. But if she did, still the only sort of consistent presence across all those events is the ATP and the tennis tour. Zverev said in his press conference at the U.S. Open that he supports the ATP enacting a domestic abuse policy. And the ATP did make an announcement um, last week that it was undergoing a comprehensive review of its safeguarding policies. Can you explain in a little bit more detail what the ATP announced and, and what exactly it's undertaking right now? It definitely seemed to mark a shift from their position and they came out with last fall where they basically had the wait and see approach, waiting for any courts to take action. And then they may or may not do anything in addition to that. Uh, There's also, I should mention here, another case involving another pretty good men's tennis player, Nicholas Bozlashvili, who's in trial proceedings currently in his native country of Georgia against his ex-wife who accused him also of violence. Um, And that's he's continued to play on tour as well and play well. He's won multiple titles this year. Um, and accusations that he denies. He also denies that he's contesting this and it's still a trial. And his, his lawyers have said they're waiting to present their own evidence. And uh, so the ATP is waiting and seeing on how that goes in theory about what, what whether or not they may do something in that case. But in the meantime, he continues being a, a relevant uh, player at, at tournaments uh, who people are watching. And he's a player in good standing in the ATP's eyes, as is Zverev, of course. And so, this marks a shift. I think this, this statement from the ATP, we still don't know a lot of details about it. They basically said they hired independent experts to come up with uh, a report on what the sport should be doing. And so we don't know the contents of that report yet. They said expected at some point during Q4 of this year. So not too far away in coming months. Um, but there's still a lot of unknowns. We'll see if, if they tackle those sort of solutions. If they say we can't do anything, tennis is just not built for this. Or if they say the need for this is so overwhelming that we have to sort of 
structurally move mountains in some ways or, or do things that have not been achieved before in tennis to make this a priority. It's interesting to see how they, how they attack that. There hasn't been much comment from other players on tour in the past year or so. Um, no. You have spoken to, you know, you asked Novak Djokovic about whether there should be a domestic abuse policy. You asked Roger Federer mm-hmm. about um, the break between Zverev and the agency that was co-founded by Federer and uh, um, a partner of of his. So can you just describe um, what some of the specific responses have been and also just what the general kind of response has been on tour? The general response, I'll start with that, has definitely been a lot of silence. It's not been a lot of players coming out with reactions to this at all. Uh, certain players have been asked by me and by a couple other reporters during the past year about what they would think about the ATP adding a domestic violence policy. For the most part, they've been supportive of that as a sort of broad stroke idea. Uh, Federer was the one who sort of pushed back on it a bit, saying he thought it was potentially a sort of an overstepping into players' private lives and not really the domain of the tour, in his opinion. Uh, but other players, Djokovic, Andy Murray repeatedly has said he'd be in favor of domestic violence policy when he's been asked about this. He played Basilashvili in the first round of Wimbledon, so it became sort of a topic uh, during his press conferences there. Uh, and yeah, but otherwise, really not many players have spoken out proactively on their own on social media or other things. Uh, the Australian player, Daria Gavrilova, put out a post on Twitter uh, after actually before the racket piece, because uh, I think she may have known, I believe she may have known Olya, uh, Olga Sharapova from the, uh, the junior tennis days. And she put out a, a post supporting her pretty early on and saying that she was brave for coming forward. Um, but that, and Nicole Gibbs, who's now a retired player, uh, also put out something after the racket story came out showing support for Sharapova. But really, it's been, other than those names of fairly, honestly, obscure players I just mentioned there, uh, players have not been proactively showing a lot of uh, concern for this. Ben Rothenberg wrote um, pieces about Olga Sharapova's accusations for Racket and for Slate. He is also the co-host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Josh. Coming up next... Grant Wall joins us to talk about Cristiano Ronaldo and Manchester United. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Merriam-Webster's online dictionary lists 21 synonyms for the word self-love, and pretty much any of them applies to Cristiano Ronaldo, big head, conceit, egotism, pomposity, self-admiration, self-conceit, self-glory, swell-headedness, vainglory, vanity, etc., etc. So I'd like to think it's possible that the goal-scoring icon was at least a tiny bit humbled when, after demanding last week to leave his Italian club Juventus, there was little market for his services. Paris Saint-Germain, PSG, declined entreaties from Ronaldo's agent, and so did English power Manchester City. 
In the end, Ronaldo didn't return to Turin with his tail between his tight shorts. Manchester United agreed to pay a modest 30-something million dollar transfer fee to Juventus, plus Ronaldo's not-so-modest 60-something million dollar salary to bring the Portuguese megastar back to the club of his youth. He might not help the team win, but he'll trigger fond memories and sell a shit ton of jerseys. Grant Wall joins us now. He is the author of the book Masters of Modern Soccer, the host of the Football with Grant Wall podcast, and the author of the brand new newsletter Football with Grant Wall, to which he would very much like you to subscribe. Welcome back to the show, Grant. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, so Ronaldo, as with most things involving global icons, this was about money and ego, but it still felt kind of weird to me. One of the two best players of his generation, one of the greatest goal scorers of all time, who's still reasonably effective, if not elite, was sort of begging for somewhere to play. Why did this and how did this happen? Yeah, I mean, there is an element of ego here, I think. And I do personally believe that Ronaldo felt like People weren't talking about him very much. Lionel Messi, his arch rival, had just moved to PSG, uh, and and Ronaldo had one year left on his contract with Juventus in Italy. Things aren't looking like Juventus is going to challenge to win the Champions League this season, and so then it became sort of a question of if Ronaldo wanted to move, which he did, could somebody else pay his astronomical salary in addition to a you know, decent sized transfer fee. It looked like it might be Manchester City, which has a lot of money, one of the few clubs that does. Then Man City decided, no, we're not interested. PSG, as you said, not interested. And there weren't many other clubs that would have been able to afford his salary. Manchester United is one of them. And as they tell the story, various Manchester United figures lobbied Ronaldo to come back to the club of his youth. And that's what's happened here. He has a better chance of winning Champions League at Man United than he did at Juventus, signs a two-year deal, but there are questions from a soccer perspective of whether this is a good fit and whether he'll actually help Man United that much. He scored 29 league goals last season, which is a lot. He is 36 years old, um, so he's certainly not in the prime of his career. That's very old for a soccer player, but it's clearly going to be a marketing boon for Man U. And the dude scored 29 goals, to reiterate. Why wouldn't he be more of a hot commodity? I think maybe because he's 36 uh, and he is in very good shape, but he sucks the oxygen out of a room and out of a team. And so by going to Man United, they've added some very good players this offseason, younger players like Jaden Sancho, like Rafael Varane, who's won several Champions Leagues with Real Madrid, terrific defender. And I think the question is, did United even need someone like Ronaldo? And now that you have him, are you going to have to start him every single game? And how is that going to impact how you play the game? He doesn't defend at all. <laughs> and he's really at the bottom. If you look at the uh, the data analysis, he's in the the one percent, like the first percentile in terms of defending forwards in European soccer. So you're going to make some sacrifices as a team for Ronaldo to play. He isn't a winger anymore. He's much more of a center forward, not nearly as mobile. 
And so I do think there are some questions about how United is going to utilize him and whether he's going to start every game. And if he doesn't, how is he going to respond to that? Because he does have a healthy ego, as Stefan mentioned. So, Grant, that there's not a clear market for someone of his talent doesn't seem so surprising given the age, the money, and as you mentioned, like the declining defensive metrics. But people still seem surprised. Like it totally took over my timeline over this weekend. So I guess what I'm wondering is, is there a parallel to this or is there to, to what's happening with Ronaldo or what's the typical career arc of someone of Ronaldo's age and talent and star power? Um, because to me, it just makes sense that the dude is old, makes a lot of money, not a lot of use for his services anymore. Yeah, I, I think when you look at how fit he is, and he's legendary in terms of his fitness, so he's he's different from other players. In soccer, at the highest levels, usually players start to retire around 34, 35 years old. You know, a lot of these guys became professionals when they were 16, 17 years old. They've been ground down by this extremely punishing sport in which there's very little time off between seasons and they play a bunch of games. But Ronaldo is a bit of a freak physically. And so I do think he can play at a, at a pretty high level. I guess the question is, at what point does he maybe decide to come to MLS and sign with, say, Inter-Miami or NYCFC, where he can finish up his career in a less demanding environment, still make really good money and help grow the sport here. Isn't he a little worried about coming to the United States, though, given that there's still some some overhang from uh, a rape allegation from the 2000s? Yeah, it's a case that hasn't totally been dismissed yet. So there was a rape allegation uh, filed by a woman in Las Vegas about an incident that happened in 2009. Now, in 2019, the district attorney in Las Vegas declined to uh, go after criminal charges against Ronaldo, but there still exists a civil case in a federal court. And so we're still waiting for the judge to make a decision on whether that will proceed or not. So this case isn't completely gone away. Der Spiegel in Germany, very respected magazine, did a big story on this uh, with a lot of details from what was called the football leaks investigation. Uh, And so Right now, we haven't seen Ronaldo come to the United States in a few years. And I, I do think there is some jeopardy there that is preventing him from coming to the United States, which also could theoretically prevent him from coming to join an MLS team. Ronaldo denies all of those accusations, yes. um, which is important to say. And I guess with Messi moving to PSG, all of these rumors about Kylian Mbappe potentially going to Real Madrid, how much, um, if we talk about those three moves, how much of that is about those individual players and those individual teams and how much of it is about the moment that we're in, in international soccer and the economics of the game, because this is kind of an extraordinary transfer window. Like you don't see players of this caliber moving around um, like this. We haven't seen it in a a while. Well, it was such a huge story earlier this year when the Super League happened and then failed very quickly and spectacularly. Part of that has to do with the financial situation of the clubs in Europe and the top clubs. And we've seen there's a couple 
clubs, Manchester City and, and PSG in particular, that are basically funded by nation states from the Middle East and have sort of an almost unlimited supply of money. Other clubs have their own, a couple other ones have, have a, a lot of money as well. Chelsea, run by an oligarch. Manchester United and Real Madrid are still very much global superpowers, even though they claim to be in the poorhouse. That's why they wanted uh, to start the Super League. But then Real Madrid has suddenly found more than $200 million to bid for Kylian Mbappe. So it's hard to take some of these things seriously. But Barcelona, for example, is more than a billion dollars in debt right now. Just terrible mismanagement at that club compounded by COVID. So financially, we're seeing just a couple of clubs, super clubs, uh, be in a situation to afford the very best players. That's why Lionel Messi had to leave Barcelona, even though he didn't want to do it. The club didn't want to do it. But PSG could actually afford to pay him and Barcelona couldn't. And there doesn't really seem to be much, you know, soccer logic between particularly Messi and Ronaldo's moves. Mbappe's 22 he still has a decade um, at the highest level, which leads you to sort of wonder, like, if only there are really only four or five teams that can afford these players, aren't they just sort of collecting these players? This is less about competitive reasons than it is about prestige and marketing. It's like they're collecting Fabergé eggs. You know, you can afford it, and they look pretty, and they will accrue in, in their return value to the club. That's totally it. If you follow on Twitter some members of the Qatari royal family, which runs and owns PSG, that's the excitement that they have that Lionel Messi came to their team, and they really wanted to pursue that prestige. Now, I do find it interesting, Manchester City turned down the opportunity to sign Cristiano Ronaldo. Manchester City has a ton of money, but at least they have much more of a a targeted strategy when it comes to acquiring players, and it's part of an overall philosophy. But Grant, don't you think that that's because Manchester United, even though they've been less successful than Man City recently, is more of a brand than Man City, and Man City's brand is winning games? I, I do think that's part of it, but if you look at the strategy that Manchester United's had for the last couple of years, it's been adding the right pieces as part of an overall strategy to win more games. And Ronaldo doesn't fit that strategy. And so uh, I think they've stepped away a little bit, Man United, with this signing. But yeah, I don't think PSG, like Messi, necessarily fits some... I mean, he's just a great player, and he's still a great player. He'll be good for them, but it's not like PSG has some overall strategy. We talked about like the differences between these these clubs trying to bring in star power to their clubs, and like the difference between you know uh, promotion and uh, you know being a competitive a competitive club. So I'm just more curious as to why like has there been an analytics movement that has taken over soccer in the same way that it's exerted all this enormous influence in basketball and baseball here in America so that like these European soccer clubs are realizing now that tying up tens of millions of dollars in one star player is actually an ineffective way to compete. I would say that analytics and data analysis in soccer at the highest levels is a bit behind by a few years, like the NBA and a few other sports, including baseball. But there are some teams that use 
data a lot more than others. And I would say Liverpool is a terrific example of, and this isn't all that surprising, right? They're owned by Fenway Sports Group and they don't have as much money as PSG or Manchester City or even Manchester United, but Liverpool has been really smart about using data to identify players and bring them in and they will spend money occasionally, but they they know they can't compete and just outspend teams. And so I know Liverpool fans have been frustrated at times because they haven't always made as many transfer signings as is the case this year than some of the other clubs, but they're still able to compete. They've won the Champions League recently. They've won the Premier League. And that's a, a differing strategy than just spend, spend, spend like some of these other clubs. Well, but it's spend, 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 and accumulate, accumulate, accumulate talent. Um, but that talent isn't necessarily the top three, four, five, six most expensive players in the world. I mean, that's certainly how Chelsea has succeeded. Champions League winners, they just made the flashiest acquisition and probably the best competitive acquisition of this transfer window in Romelu Lukaku. Um, but you look at Man City and you're right. There's no Messi, there's no Ronaldo, there's no Mbappe, um, there's no Erlen Holland, the great player at Dortmund, who is is you know fated at some point to break records for transfer fees. That's true, and in, basically the main figure at Manchester City is Pep Guardiola, and they're a team that won the Premier League last year, but they still haven't won the UEFA Champions League, which is the big prize that Manchester City's owners want. But they've entrusted Guardiola to develop a plan for how he wants to play, how he wants to win games. And when you actually look at it, in terms of actual star power, Manchester City doesn't have as much as some of these other top European soccer clubs. You know, Kevin De Bruyne is probably their best player, but he's not a global superstar in the realm of, of Messi or, or Ronaldo. So there's very much a philosophy that Man City has had. Now, will they change that at some point to, to get Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe are viewed as the next two world superstars, the best players in the world, after we've had this more than a decade now where Messi and Ronaldo have been the two best players in the world? Yeah, my last thought is that the thing that's interesting about this is that the signing is irrational for all of the reasons that you've mentioned. But the way in which these signings is usually irrational is that they don't make sense financially. But in this case, they're not going to lose money on this, right? Like they're going to so, sell so many shirts with Ronaldo's name and number on the back. And so it's just like, a, it doesn't make sense on the field. It doesn't make sense from kind of like an ego and personnel management sense, but it's not like stupid in the way that like, it's not going to bankrupt the club. It's, it's not going to redound negatively in the way that the, the sort of like modern big money, big star transfer has the for way that Juventus acquisition of Ronaldo helped bankrupt it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's an interesting one. Like you look at Ronaldo's last couple of years at Juventus after he left Real Madrid, he scored a lot of goals, but Juventus didn't win the Italian league last year. They haven't won a champions league with Ronaldo, which was their main goal of acquiring him. They did sell a lot of shirts, but Juventus isn't on the level globally 
that Manchester United is. And so, yes, Manchester United will sell a ton of shirts with Ronaldo's name on them, just as PSG has done with Messi and number 30, which still seems very strange for me to see. One last thought, Grant. Um, FIFA just released a study showing that $48.5 billion had been spent in the international uh, transfer market over the last decade. There have to be club owners in Europe who would like to see the sport shift to a more American style of player acquisition. Is that the case? And like, why does the transfer uh, system continue on? Well, one thing about the Super League announcement proposal that came out earlier this year and died very quickly that got less coverage was that the owners of that Super League, so basically the 15 biggest teams in Europe, had actually agreed for spending controls, which is something that clubs like Liverpool had really pushed for. They didn't want it just to be unfettered spending. And, and that's what we've seen over the last you know, so many years is European soccer is very much the Wild West. There's, you know, they have something called financial fair play rules from UEFA, which supposedly keep you from spending beyond your means, beyond your revenues. But those financial fair play rules have been shown to be pretty toothless. And so the Super League was actually going to have more spending control. And I do think at a certain point here, and this has been accelerated by COVID, that we're going to see just a couple of nation state sponsored teams be able to outspend everybody and stockpile the very best players in the world. And I think there's going to be a threshold that's crossed where people say, you know what, for just competitive balance or something even remotely resembling that, some things need to change in a big way. Grant Wall's new soccer newsletter is called Football with Grant Wall. Subscribe now. Grant, you got 10 seconds to pitch why. We should subscribe to your newsletter. I'm going to be doing on-location reporting uh, journalism, all 14 U.S. World Cup qualifiers, which start this week, and going around the world to do stories like I did on Jesse Marsh in Germany, the American at Leipzig. Sold. Grant, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Next up, we'll talk about ESPN, Rachel Nichols, and Stephen A. Smith. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about players from the New York Mets baseball team and their decision to give the thumbs down to their own fans. To go with us on this special journey to Opposite Land, you have to be a Slate Plus member. That membership will give you extra segments, plus you can listen to every Slate podcast without ads, and you get unlimited reading on the Slate website. It's only a dollar for the first month, so give Slate Plus a try. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Disney paid $1.4 billion for a nine-year extension to NBA TV rights in 2014, ESPN became contractually obligated to add more NBA programming to its lineup. That led to the development of a new show called The Jump, which was regularly hosted by Rachel Nichols. Nichols had left CNN and Turner Sports to return to ESPN, where she would also join the cast of NBA Countdown and work the sidelines of NBA games. That arrangement seemed to be working well until last month, when the New York Times revealed comments Nichols made about colleague Maria Taylor in a secret recording. Nichols, who is white, was overheard suggesting Taylor got her job hosting NBA Countdown last year because she is black. Here's a clip. Maria Taylor, all the success in the world. She covers football, she covers basketball. If you need well, that fallout was swift and dramatic. Nichols was removed from NBA Finals coverage and publicly apologized to Taylor. Taylor left ESPN shortly after those comments were revealed, in part over failed salary negotiations, and joined NBC Sports in time for the Tokyo Olympics. Nichols' career at ESPN seems to be done, too. Last Thursday, ESPN canceled the jump and took Nichols off of all NBA coverage with more than a year left on her contract. It's unclear what's next for Nichols or ESPN's NBA coverage, Josh, and there's a lot more to be said about the direction of its coverage and the network as a whole. But what do you think of how ESPN has handled this so far? So I would recommend that folks listen to a conversation between Dan Lebitard, Jamel Hill, and Amin El-Hassan, um, which took place back in July, right after this Times story came out. These are all people who were at ESPN and have subsequently left ESPN and feel uh, more liberated to talk about what goes on there. And the thing that was so interesting about that conversation to me was that they talked about systems and they talked about people. And we can have two kind of different and intersecting conversations here. We can talk about what Rachel Nichols said, which plays into a really kind of terrible, you know, slur stereotype um, about Black people in professions and like this idea of like diversity hires and this notion that, oh, you only got where you got because of your race, which is a horrible thing to say or to think about anyone. And then as Amin and Jamal and Dan Lebertard talked about, you can get into the politics of ESPN and how cutthroat it is. And this perception that Rachel Nichols had that it was kind of every woman for herself and um, that she had to fight for this position that she'd you know, spent her career trying to get to and that she was like defending her turf. And like what Amin said, like, you know, who Amin Al-Hassan, who's black, like Rachel Nichols 
you know, was so helpful to me in my career and was so helpful to all these other, um, you know, black people that were on the jump and other people that were behind the scenes. And that all can, that all can be true. Um, and it's still this issue that comes up when to, you know, to generalize, perhaps to overgeneralize, I think perhaps it is harder to defend your principles or your views or your beliefs or to embody them when you personally feel threatened. Um, and that's kind of what I took away from this, that um, Rachel Nichols felt threatened and she did what she thought she needed to do or it's a, and, it, and in a private conversation where she didn't know that she was being recorded, which is an important thing to note. Um, she did what she felt she needed to do or said what she felt she needed to, to say to like defend this small piece of turf that she'd carved out for herself. Which leads to the, the, the systems part, you know, Joel, you said in your intro that, that there was swift action here, but, ESPN waited a year to deal with this. It allowed this to become a public story um, that focused on leaked audio. It took no action against Rachel Nichols. It didn't deal with any of the internal problems, the personnel issues. Um, so who's who's to fault here? I mean, it's the system. You talked about the systems inside this company. And what this reveals is that ESPN has problems with the way it deals with its talent of color, its staff of color, and with big personalities, big, highly paid hosts. Um, the level of ineptitude, it seems to me, Joel, is pretty high here on the company's part. You know, yeah, I, I go back and forth on that, um, and, you know with the acknowledgement that, yes, I, I worked at ESPN right before I got here um, for a couple of years. And I actually don't think ESPN is all that different mm -hmm. from a lot of other places. But what I, the, way that, the way that I'll explain it is this, is that ESPN and broadcast networks perpetuate the sort of zero-sum game environment where someone else's rise generally only comes at the expense of someone else's fall, right? We see it happen over and over again. Like, a name that has not come up at all in any of this is like Cassidy Hubberth, for instance. That's somebody that was once, you know, one of their primary faces of NBA coverage. And she's sort of been lost in the last few years as Rachel Nichols, Maria Taylor, Malika Andrews, all these other people have come up. And you could see how people might get a little defensive over their mm -hmm. particular plot of land. Um, that if somebody else is on the come, then that means that you're, you might be on the way out the door. And it's unrealistic to believe that people, coworkers, but not really coworkers because you all sign your own contracts, right? You, you know, you're, once you sign your contract, you have to sort of worry about your own career path. And it's just unrealistic to believe people in that, in that sort of circumstance where these contracts are for a few years, but it's not a long-term contract. Um, you can't expect that these people are going to be charitable one another. So you know that when you're there, that you're going to have to fight for your space. And that's what I heard mm -hmm. when I heard Rachel's comments. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I I don't know Rachel Nichols that well, but I know her a little bit. And I know people that listen to Slate know that she contributed to our The Last Last Dance podcast. 
And, you know, Rachel Nichols is great, man. She's really, really good at her job. And she's had to work really, really hard to get there as well. Um, and, you know, what I heard when I heard those comments is somebody that was trying to protect the gains, you know, these these temporary gains that you make in a career that it doesn't last forever. She knows that, you know, it's particularly a woman in the business. As you get older, there's less space for you on these networks. Like Michael Wilbon can work at ESPN forever. It doesn't make a difference how he looks. But when Rachel Nichols gets older, she understands that, you know, I might be on the way out. Um, but that's not to excuse what she said. Um, because I, cause also, it, I mean, I don't think it's a surprise anybody. I'm black and, um, the surreptitious recording of her confirmed not only for Maria Taylor, but for the rest of us, what we sometimes think is black journalists, what we think that our white colleagues think about us, that if we show up, it's affirmative action or some sort of small scale reparations program. Um, but I'm less offended by that um, because at the end of the day, I want to I want the opportunity in a world where we don't get very many of them. But that's not for me to say to Maria Taylor, who was clearly offended by it. And the fact that she was offended and would not accept Rachel Nichols's apology um, is what sort of got this machinery moving to where, you know, now Rachel Nichols isn't there and neither is Maria Taylor. But I mean, why nobody should have expected Maria Taylor to feel the need to be gracious under these circumstances, you know? Yeah, well, that is extremely well said, Joel. And, you know, the one thing that I think anyone who's watched Maria Taylor from the beginning when she was on the SEC network is that she was a star. Like she's incredibly charismatic, um, incredibly smart. Just like one of the people that you'd watch on ESPN and be like, oh yeah, she's, she's really good. Like you want to like hear what she has to say. And an interesting part of this New York Times story that came out in July, um, and I'll just read this short paragraph. Taylor has become increasingly comfortable with expressing her views within the company. In the spring, she admonished executives for appointing a game coverage team for the NCAA Women's Final Four that did not include any Black women and pressured the company to add LaChina Robinson as an analyst, which they did. So she was somebody who was not only coming into her own as an on-air talent, who was getting noticed, I think, by her colleagues and by viewers as somebody who um, was really great, but somebody who... Um, and maybe it had to do with the fact that um, this Rachel Nichols thing had been happening behind the scenes like for a year before it became cut public. Like it seemed like she was unafraid to assert herself in this behind the scenes way to advocate for herself and to advocate for other people of color within the company. And, you know, that's somebody that. I I, th- I also think that Rachel Nichols is really good at her job. I liked The Jump. I thought it was a really good NBA show. I enjoyed, I mostly just saw clips of it on YouTube and stuff, but I always enjoyed, like, I thought they did a good job with that show. But, um, you know, a point that Jamel Hill made um, in kind of talking about this, like, diversity hire um, business and, like, how it feels to hear that, like, one thing Jamel said was, like, it does it does make sense to, like, have a, black woman host a show about the NBA. It's like a black, predominantly black league. And like all the analysts are mostly black on that, on that show. Like there, there's a certain kind of logic to it. And so, you know, with Maria Taylor now off to NBC, like that really hurts ESPN to like, to have her not, not be there. Um, And so that, that's just one of the things that stood out 
for me in this piece, apart from the kind of interpersonal drama, was like, this is a person who is not only um, just getting better at her job, it's like, this is a really strong voice, like in the entire like business and industry of sports now. Right, which which explains why NBC basically hired her in a nanosecond and had her at the Olympics like three days later. She's like, "Hi, um, I'm on the Olympics now." Like, people, are like, what? We didn't even know. Like, you got to Tokyo already? Like, that was. That, it was like her and True Holiday. Like, we're basically that was, the same flight. No, that was an amazing States. reveal. Like, kind of props to, to NBC for for that. But yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a very swift turnaround. Right. And back to sort of ESPN's management failure, they're losing two really talented people who were identified with the network for their work. Um, and, you know, and that reflects a real problem with how they seem to deal with personnel issues and the troubles that they appear to have with handling issues of race in the the host lineup and reporter lineup, Joel. And I don't know if that that you know, I don't know if that belies what you know about ESPN, but certainly outwardly, this feels like ESPN lost some talented people here, you know? Yeah. I mean that's the, the one thing about it is that ESPN loses talented people, but like that is the that is the history of the company. They lose mm-hmm. talented people all the time and usually they sort of replace them, right? Like I mean uh, they've lost, you know, Keith Oberman, Dan Patrick, um, Craig Kilborn, you know, going all the way back. Like, there's been people that leave ESPN. And just rounds and rounds of layoffs yeah. as well, where where people have, have departed. Right, right. And they have so many people waiting in the wings. Like I mentioned, Cassidy, L. Duncan, who is great, Mina Kimes, Malika Andrews, Monica McNutt, Clinton Yates, all these other people that are sort of in the pipeline. But I think... To your point, Stefan, like ESPN does have a problem managing these problems, but the one thing that ESPN have, has working in its favor is that it has so much black talent in comparison to so many other places that you are inevitably going to run into mm-hmm. this sort of log jam. And there's only so many, there's only so many spots for people. And so you're inevitably going to lose people. There's going to be conflict over who gets what spot and you got to kind of figure it out. But I mean, I think, you know, it was so interesting that. On the day that Rachel Nichols, um, it was announced that she was going to lose her job. It was the New York Post that reported that there, you know, ESPN's top star, a black star, Stephen A. Smith, essentially wanted to just reorganize NBA coverage around himself, Michael Wilbon and Magic Johnson, which is like, okay, there's a lot of talent over there. Uh, but also let's just bring back the old gang, like a bunch of old dudes, right? Um, and I just thought that was really But also that he like wants to get rid of Max Kellerman on yeah first take and like has aspirations to be a, you know, and late wanted to get rid of Max Kellerman for years, I think was the line that the reporting used. Yes. Yeah. And th- there's like some ESPN plus show called Stephen A's world, which I've, I have never seen ad- admittedly, but like, it does seem like it is Stephen A's world over there. <laughs> and he is someone who has an extraordinary gift to get people to pay attention to him and to, Listen to what he has to say. The guy, the guy has a has a talent, um, and so you know, ESPN is is isn't dumb. Like I think they they realize that he's somebody who attracts eyeballs at a, a time when 
there's more competition both in sports and just like from everything else going on in the world. Like ESPN needs um, people who command attention. And one thing, you know, I mentioned those layoffs, Joel, like we might think that dozens upon dozens of people at ESPN are like more talented than maybe other people there or other people in the business. But like, it's the same with announcers anywhere. Like how many of these people can really affect the ratings on a game or on a studio show? Like maybe, you know, John Madden could do it. Um, I remember getting excited about when Madden and Summerall were calling a Saints game. Like that was a huge event. Um, it's kind of telling that that's like how far I'm going going back here. But <laughs> yeah, right. um, Stephen A. Smith is somebody that people will like actually pay attention to. And Rachel Nichols, for all that we think that she's great, is not somebody that like, oh, Rachel, like are, are a huge number of TV viewers going to be like, oh, Rachel Nichols is on. I got to see whatever it is that she has to say. Stephen A. Smith has become more like sort of a network celebrity anchor. And Brian Curtis made this point on his Ringer podcast, Press Box, that networks and anchors, you know, become so wedded to each other that the line between the talent and the network disappears. And that's where ESPN seems to be. It seems to be that they will do pretty much anything that Stephen A. Smith wants. Um, even, you know, let's not forget, a month ago, he made basically racist comments about Shohei Otani and Nigeria's basketball players. And here we are, you know, four or five weeks later, talking about the 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 complete influence that he has over personnel and his future at this company. That's, I mean, that's the thing about Stephen A, man. He's been really resilient. I mean, we, those of us who've been following sports know Stephen A. Smith was there once upon a time, got walked out of ESPN. You know, eventually his show didn't work. He had to go away for a little bit and then came back and he's back stronger than ever. So, um, you know, Stephen A has figured out a way to navigate this system in a way that not many people have and, and to build upon his brand. And, you know, that's what I was actually thinking about. Like, okay, so we know that Stephen A uh, is sort of the star of ESPN. And to your point, Josh, like there's just not very many people that can move the needle like that. And I just sort of wonder, you know, the thing about Rachel Nichols and everybody else, if if like this is all just part of a larger piece of this financial course correction in the era of the pandemic, that even if they say that it was sort of about the comments that Rachel Nichols made, that if it's about also shedding salary, because they're doing that across the board at ESPN. And if you talk to anybody at ESPN, if you have any friends there, and I still do, they're working behind the scenes to get people to take pay cuts, not renewing contracts. Rachel Nichols is an easy contract to get rid of at the end of the day. And they're like, oh, we can stop paying her and we can pay one of these younger people um, a lot less. They don't, you know, they don't have to pay Maria Taylor however much money Maria Taylor is getting because they know that even though she's really talented, she doesn't move people like Stephen A. Smith, which is sad because we're missing out on this talent. But it's also sort of disappointing because it portends poorly for like what we're going to watch on ESPN over the next few years. Like if they're just like, OK, we don't have to spend a lot of money on talent. We can just sort of double down on Stephen A. and let him build our programming. You know, I think Stephen A. is fascinating and and, and, and really good TV. But I also don't know that I want all of ESPN like that. And I think we've all sort of said this here 
oh, I didn't watch that show. I saw clips of it. Oh, I didn't watch that show. I saw clips of it. Well, that's that sort of seems to be like what ESPN has become now, right? It's not appointment TV. It's the sort of stuff that just sort of rises above the din when Stephen A. Smith says something outrageous or there's some sort of big, you know, controversy at the company. But the programming in and of itself is not exactly what people are coming for anymore. And I just think that's that's really sad for those of us that remembers what ESPN was like, you know, 20 years ago. So does that mean, Joel, that ESPN is willing to pay the $12 million a year to Stephen A um, to get some of that sort of that vestigial um, content that, you know, we're used to, that moving the needle, outrageous clips type stuff, as opposed to the, you know, thoughtful sports conversation that we hear from Mina and Bomani Jones and Pablo Torre and other younger um uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. And I mean, it's funny you mentioned those guys because they're, they're clearly all part of the star class, right? Um, but there's not mm-hmm. like, like once you get past that, there's a level of like people and, and uh, ESPN personalities that don't really, they're very good. There's a lot of talent over there, but they don't move the needle. And when that starts to happen, like that's when you know that, okay, I need to start thinking about another move or like where else I'm going to go. Because if you, if you haven't ascended to that, to that level, then, you know, there's not much of a future there for you. Well, Pablo and Pablo and Bomani had their own show and it didn't move the needle enough and they canceled it. And those are two of the smartest guys on ESPN. Right. And I would, I would, I would say, is it like, keep your eye out on like what happens with them next? Like, would do you like, if you think they'll be there in two years, I don't, um, to be honest, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, Bomani's already doing, a show on eight on on uh, on HBO with Bob Costas right now. That's that that doesn't seem to portend that he has a, a real long future there. And Pablo is down to ESPN Daily, um, which has been sort of hemorrhaging listeners over the last few years. So um, it just <laughs> I, I think that like we're we're in for a new era of ESPN. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it seems like it's going to be a lot of, a lot of Stephen A. A lot of you know a lot of the what we like to call the Tom Joyner Cruz uh, demographic. On uh, TV, I don't. How many? I, do you, I wonder how many people, how many of our listeners know who Tom Joyner is and the Tom Joyner Cruise is. But um, you know, which is fun and it's, it, to some extent, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean that like there's going to be a lot of the quality programming that we come to associate with ESPN. I think. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. Joel, you pointed out to us on Sunday that ESPN had just aired a high school football game involving a school that some people seem to think 
doesn't even exist. On the one side was uh, IMG Academy at Florida, which basically sends players to Alabama and Clemson. And on the other was something called Bishop Sycamore from Ohio. And according to reporting, these games are arranged by, you know, these, 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 these booking firms, marketing agencies. And Bishop Sycamore said that it had some Division I prospects, multiple Division I prospects. Turned out not so much. They were losing like 30 to nothing in the second quarter. And the announcers actually on air had to issue an explanation. Bishop Sycamore told us they had a number of Division I prospects on their roster. And to be frank, a lot of that we could not verify. They did not show up in our database. They did not show up in the databases of other recruiting services. So, okay, that's what you're telling us. Fine. That's how we take it in from what we've seen so far. This is not a fair fight. And there's got to be a point where you're worried about health and safety. Yikes. Well, in all fairness, I mean, you know, Bishop Sycamore had played a game two days earlier. So maybe they were a little beat up before their game against the top ranked IMG Ascenders, you know? Like maybe they didn't, it wasn't a fair fight because they were already tired from a game they played 48 hours earlier. Josh, what's your Bishop Sycamore? Most of you no doubt remember the show we did on October 11th, 2011. You were there, Stefan. Uh, Hang up and listen, the Crown Prince of Paranoia edition. The topics were the baseball playoffs, the legacy of Raiders owner Al Davis, and the state of women's pro basketball with a special guest, the co-owner of the WNBA's Atlanta Dream, future lunatic senator Kelly Loeffler, who back then came off as kind of normal, actually. But I'm not here to talk about any of that. I'm here to reminisce about my afterball from that day was on the longest downs and distances to go in football history. There was a 4th and 56 from your Georgia Bulldogs, a 4th and 63 in a Cowboys-Patriots game from 1971, and a 4th and 69 in a Florida high school game between East East Lake and Tarpon Springs. You familiar with nice. those schools, Joel? Oh, yeah, Pinellas County. Shout out. What's up? All right, isn't Tarpon Springs like the sponge catchers or something? Oh no, man! It is something strange. All right, we're looking. We're looking this up live now. We got to Google it. Yeah, this is real time. So there's a tourist attraction called the Tarpon Springs Sponge Docks. Tarpon Springs High School. Welcome to Sponger Nation. There you go. Okay. There you go. Yeah, a lot of Greeks are in the uh, in the sponge industry. Great Greek food. Yeah. I was just going to say. Yeah, great Greek food mm-hmm. there in Tarpon. All right, Springs. welcome to Sponge yeah. Nation. Um, everybody who's listening, but uh, we are also not here to talk about Sponge Nation. Those are all wonderful downs and distances, particularly 4th and 69. Don't want to take anything away from them. But nearly 10 years after I did this afterball, somebody tweeted at me, Tyler Ebal, that he had a correction to the afterball. <laughs> Not a correction, an addendum. And we will take new information wherever we get it. So whenever, wherever, however we get it. So thank you, Tyler. Um, and he informed me of a game between the Steelers and the Raiders, an NFL game, October 25th, 1970. Interesting fact about that game. I don't know if Joel uh, Trivia Anderson wants to guess what was interesting about uh, Steelers-Raiders from October 25th, 1970. A storied rivalry. Something to do with Daryl LaMonica? Daryl LaMonica did start, but was replaced by 43-year-old George Blanda after he got hurt. Former Oilers great. 
Jordan. So Jordan, what was notable is this was the first game ever between the Steelers and the Raiders. October 25th, 1970. What? Yeah. 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 Two, two years before the Immaculate Reception game, um, won by the Steelers with the help of a lucky bounce in the arms of Franco Harris. This was the, the beginning of the rivalry. Um, so October 25th, 1970, I'm going to take you live. Not actually live, but I'm going to take you to Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. First quarter, Terry Bradshaw and the Steelers are driving. First and 10 at the Raiders' 27-yard line. Running back Preston Pearson. You know that guy, Stefan? I do. I remember him. He gets it around right end, loses seven yards. Second and 17. We've all (laughs) seen worse. You know, big deal, second and 17. The next play, our quarterback, Terry Bradshaw out of uh, Louisiana Tech, goes back to pass, gets dropped for a loss of 16 yards. Third and 33. Pretty pretty embarrassing. Still seen a lot worse. The Steelers sensibly now try to limit the damage, hand the ball off to our man Preston Pearson on a delay for 12 yards. Not bad. But naturally, a penalty. The official game book, which uh, our friend Tyler Ebal has uh, screenshotted, says that the Steelers were called for clipping, but newspaper articles from the next day say something different. They say that Preston Pearson was called for hurdling a flabbergaster, flabbergastered, a flabbergasted Steelers coach. Chuck Knoll said, hurdling penalty. Whoever heard of a hurdling penalty? Knoll said it was an old penalty put in the books in 1890, which... Okay, the NFL definitely didn't exist in 1890, but uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, this is perhaps a subject for another afterball on another day, hurdling penalties. But now we must march forward. We must continue uh, to figure out what, what happens to the Steelers on this drive. And by marching forward, I mean marching backward, because it is now third <laughs> and 42. And finally, a huge gain for the Steelers. The embarrassing slide ceases. Um it's a, a pass from Bradshaw to Ronnie Shanklin. You know who that is, Stefan? No? Vaguely. All right. Bradshaw to Shanklin for 33 yards on third and 42. But wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Flag on the field. Holding. The game book says that it's a 23-yard penalty for reasons that aren't clear to me, but it is now third and 65. Uh, Bradshaw drops back to pass, and this is just where it gets special. Intentional grounding. Fourth no. and 74. No. We did it. We beat we beat uh, the Tarpon Springs fourth and 69. Fourth and 74. Hollywood baby. Henderson. The Steelers are at their own nine at this point. And sadly, they do not go for it. Bobby Walden <laughs> gets off a nice punt of 55 yarders, 55 yarder. Ooh. And the Raiders get called for holding on the return. So, all in all, the Steelers didn't actually lose that much field position, but they did lose the game 31 to 14. As I said, George Blanda off the bench to lead the Raiders to victory. Um, so, Joel, what is the longest down and distance you remember being a part of? Or, alternate question, which we'll also accept, what is the longest negative play that you personally were responsible for? Hmm. I definitely was involved on JV, probably in a... In a, in, in a oh, you know what? Actually, okay, I, I remember this now. My first, my first carry at a TCU intra squad scrimmage. Oh, no. I was so nervous, oh, no. and I missed the pitch, 
and the ball squirted back like 20 yards and I fell on it. Oh, and, uh, I feel so bad. For it was so, ball. it was so humiliating. I mean, I was just, I was just so, I was just shaking as I was coming out of the huddle and then the ball hit my little skittery hands and fell back. And, uh, I did get, an, I get a, did get a few more carries, uh, after that though and did, uh, did okay. But did you get, that was that? probably, you must person. Um, you know what? I didn't. And you know, that's actually worse because if your coaches don't even yell at you, they don't give a shit about what's going on. You know what I mean? Like, like that's the, if your coach, if your coach cares enough to get mad, that's great. If he doesn't care, then that's a, actually a really bad sign. And so he didn't really yell at me. Oh. But can I, can I say one thing? You may. Preston Pearson. I know Preston Pearson because I worked with his son, Greg Pearson at Shreveport Times. Uh, he was a photographer there oh, nice. uh, while we were there at the same time. So yeah, man. Wow. Yeah, Preston Pearson and Greg Pearson. So a lot, a lot of, a lot of connections in this afterball. You really brought it home. There's a lot of. Do you guys want to talk about your own losses <laughs> in any way? Did you all have uh, a loss of, of any chance and ultimate frisbee that you've seen? <laughs> so. Stefan, did you ever run the bases backwards in softball? Or anything, <laughs> yeah, right. anything like that? I did miss first base on Sunday. In the in our in our weekly pickup game, after like hitting the ball over the left center fielder's head, I'm rounding first because I thought he might catch it, and I wasn't looking. I feel like the I ran. I back. feel like the equivalent, and I re- did run back and touch the base, and then I got caught in a rundown between second and third oh. on the same play, and got to third, <laughs> and nobody yelled at you. <laughs> I'm guessing. Out. Yeah, I'm nobody trying to think of what the tennis equivalent would be. Probably like hitting the ball off the frame, backwards over the fence, like behind you. That would be pretty bad. Yeah, that's pretty bad. I mean, I, I did write a book in which I made a fool of myself on a football field, so yeah. And I've never I've never played football except for intramurals, so I can't really add anything there. But that is our uh, show for today. Our producer this week was Alyssa Eads. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It would be helpful. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.